Hi, it's Nikki Nellis. Welcome back to Industry Night, the show that takes you on a deep dive on the happenings of the food, wine, and hospitality industry. Uh, so here I am at the gorgeous wine lair. I'm so grateful that they sponsor this show. And every week we come to you with an array of guests from the DC metro area, nationally and internationally, talking about what's happening in the hospitality industry. Um, so if you're new here, Hey, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Um, a little bit about me. So I've been covering uh, the food, wine, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. If you're local to DC, you read the list, areyouonit.com, the online e-zine that tells you absolutely everything that's happening in the DC metro area, and honestly, a little bit beyond. Of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or um X, I guess it's called X now, Threads, LinkedIn, and the show is now on YouTube. So please subscribe, and I hope you're watching. Every Sunday, you hear my husband David and I on Foodie and the Beast. We have been on air for 15 years this October, and uh, it is still DC's only food and wine variety show. So definitely tune in on 1500. Um, and I think that's I think that's where you find me. Oh yeah, sometimes you hear me on WTOP and of course I'm on TV every now and again too. So stay tuned for all the fun things that I am doing. Okay, so if you pay attention to my Insta feed, you do know that I go out and about and I cover it pretty hardcore. Um, and normally at this part of the show, I would take you on a little, little journey with me on all the places that I've been. But I have two superstars in studio and I am going to go right to them. So, um, I know I have mentioned being at the James Beard Awards quite a few times, but I'm going to mention it again because it pertains to one of today's guests. Um, yes, I'm a full believer in the James Beard mission, reason one why I was there. And yes, I did get the gig of a lifetime when Hilton hired me to be their ambassador on the red carpet. And I got to interview all the amazing culinary people. Case in point, James Beard Award winner, woo, Rob Ruba. Now, Rob and I go a bit of a ways back. Um, in fact, he was on Foodie and the Beast before anybody knew his name. I just want to make that perfectly clear. He was about to open up. Actually, he wasn't even about to. Hazel was still in pop-up form, and it was a going to open up by Neighborhood Restaurant Group. It did indeed open up, um, but that's how long ago. And... Look at baby now, he's all grown up. Um, let's see, he and his restaurant, Oyster Oyster, have a Michelin star, uh, Esquire Magazine's best new restaurant, the 2023 Outstanding Chef for James Beard, Snail of Approval from Slow Foods, Wine Enthusiast Magazine's best new restaurant in America, and the Creme de la Creme Food and Wine Magazine named Rob Ruba best new chef in America in 2022. I mean, I think he could just call it a day. You're all done. <laughs> Out. Um, so how did uh, Rob evolve? Well, some of it actually had to do with another incredibly old friend, um, Max Culler. So um, I've mentioned my good friend, Mark Culler, on this show um, several times over the years because he was an absolute force in the DC food, wine, and hospitality scene. Um, it was a friendship I cherished. Um, I miss him so much. It makes me tear up. Um, and I think of him often. But Mark's son, Max, uh, became a part of the industry, I believe, thanks to his father. But we're going to find out more. Um, but he, too, was on Foodie and the Beast eons ago, pouring sherry. And I remember this very well. I remember texting your dad and saying, um, your passion really shone through on the mic. And that uh, you were... One of the sweetest people I knew, and I said, I, I know I said this for a fact. I said, if you put his finger in water, it would become sweeter. And your dad felt the same way. Okay. Um, well, anyway, my tears aside, at some point, Max met Rob, and they started a business. And they changed the dining scene, not just in D.C., but the conversation of plant-based dining in this country. So... Hey, gentlemen. Hello. Thank you both for joining me today. Um, Rob, I do want to start with you. Um, a little background on, like, were you cooking at your grandma's knee? Like, what got you hot about food? Wow, what got me hot about food? Um, 
it wasn't really until late into my life, probably about 19 years old. I was going to say, since you're yeah. like 32, I mean, seriously. <laughs> 41. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> no, but um, it was it was later. It was around uh, in college. Um, I just started going out with some friends to eat and stuff. Mm -hmm. Where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to University of Arts in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. briefly. Oh. <laughs> the study well, but fine I mean, you were in a city that had... A good dining scene. Yeah. An interesting dining scene. Interesting dining scene. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I was going to anything, you know, revered or anything along the lines of that, but we'd go down to the Italian market and buy ingredients and like uh -huh. cook dinner for one another. And at that time I was, uh, kind of leaving art school. I wasn't sure that was the right thing for me. And then my parents suggested I go to, uh, work with my uncle in Connecticut at the Mohegan Sun Casino and Resort. Mm. Um, where, uh, was put into the pastry, uh, program. I figured they thought that was a good correlation with art and then pastry. Sure. Um, and then that's when Wait, I Wait, when you say it. art, were you painting, yeah, sculpting, I did, I did drawing, like what? Oil painting and drawing. I okay. mean, fine arts was my study. Um, dabbled with graphic design for a little bit too, mm -hmm. um, which is something I'm dabbling with more again now these <laughs> days. <laughs> well, menu creation is not cheap, so. <laughs> no, exactly. And, um, you know, through that, I, I started to discover food a lot more. I was living with my, my uncle at the time that was a chef and he had this amazing cookbook collection. And mm. I mean, every book you can think of at that time that was out, he had, and I would pull down these books and just start flipping through it and see this world of food I never knew. You know, I grew up with like a very, we'd eat a lot at home and it was like steak and potatoes and a salad, or maybe mm. mom would make lasagna on a Sunday or something like that. And I wasn't really exposed to dining out. And then just seeing all this whimsy and magic and, and flavor profiles, and ingredients I'd never seen before was just like so inspiring. It was this world I could just dive into. And uh, that really gave me the itch and got me going and wanted to do this for a life, lifelong career. Yeah. And so once you started working in restaurants, okay, like I, I'm going to, where were you like, just give me like a couple of the places that sort of informed your cooking. Yeah. So I, I think that foundation was really good at the casino because I really didn't have a lot of discipline yet. I was just mm -hmm. this young kid that loved to like skateboard and listen to music and, and screw around. I really mm -hmm. didn't have direction. So that was like a good thing to work around professionals and every day put on a uniform and show up to work on time. And if mm -hmm. you didn't show up on time, you were told to go home and things like that. So that can be a good foundation. And then well, I there is the military component to the chef's code and to the style that a kitchen is arranged in. Yeah. So it does provide a structure. Exactly. And it's something I needed. I think I've always been a very creative minded person. I, I like to do that. But if you don't have that, that structure discipline, it's very hard to use that to your advantage. Right. Mm -hmm. So, right. And, and maybe make a, a living out of it. And I think my parents were a little worried with the art degree, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was, that was really influential. And just to have the support from my uncle in the early days, even mm -hmm. now to be a mentor was uh, amazing for me. Um, and then from there, I remember opening up the New York Times and they were talking about the opening of Gordon Ramsay at the London Hotel in New York City. Um, I saw all the chefs in there that their little white toques on their blue aprons. There was like 50 people in the kitchen. I was like, I need to do that. So mm. I, uh, I left a, a girlfriend at the time. I left, uh, what, $300 in a duffel bag and, and went to New York City and, uh, went for a stage and luckily got the job and lived on some couches for the first few months. Um, and that restaurant changed everything because I'd not done fine dining up until then. And to be under like this wonderful place with all these professional chefs, uh, under the, you know, magic of Gordon Ramsay at the time. This is before all the Fox screaming and all that mm -hmm. on television. Uh, it was really Right, so everybody exciting. take your judgment off the table. <laughs> Gordon Ramsay actually was a good chef before he was yelling at people. And uh, to work under that that system and those chefs um, was, was life-changing. I'd mm -hmm. never worked in a restaurant like that where, you know, they put carpets down and they're vacuuming in between services and everything was so regimented and organized and, and, you know, it was a very stressful and very hard, but, uh, it really set the tone for me of what, what type of restaurant and what type of chef I wanted to be and, and where I wanted to go in my career. So that really set the projection and, um, went really forward from there. I mean, then I worked for Guy Savoie for two years in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's got a, had a three Michelin star restaurant in Paris for a very long time at a two Michelin star restaurant in Vegas. Um, really honed my craft there and met some amazing people. 
and uh, did some time in Chicago with briefly Charlie Trotter and the Rock Crow, mm. and then uh, New York again, dabbled a little bit. But so, what brought you to yeah. DC? Um, a baby on board. All um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I were expecting. Um, I was in Philadelphia at the time. I didn't really feel like that had an opportunity for me. And mm -hmm. I had some chef friends who had met through my journeys who were living in DC at the time and had started families. I came here. I fell in love with the food scene, mm. with the people. Uh, so really, this is when, like 2016, 2015? 2012, 2013. Oh, so it's earlier. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right around then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be, it's been 10 years now. Wow. It's really wild. <laughs> and, uh, it goes fast. Yeah, it goes really fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The kids, kids make that thing go hyperspeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we came here. I just like fell in love with the city. I saw like all these great restaurants. I saw the growth that was going on that time. I talked to a lot of, folks that were here and it just sold uh sold me on it and i don't know it's the rest is history there with the 10 okay years. so but when you were so while you're cooking all this time you are a omnivore carnivore you're eating everything where are you personally yeah personally i've always leaned more towards wanting to eat vegetables like on okay. my days off um, you know, or, or fish, like you go to the restaurant, I'm the one that orders the fruit dessert, the salad and the fish course. And mm -hmm. it always gets mixed up with my wife and I was always an issue. <laughs> it's like, no, no, yeah, she's having a show. Yeah, the massage we'll put that aside, yeah. but let's move on. That's a show for another day. Yeah, we're going to do that one <laughs> next time. Yeah, we can do that. Um, but it's always like something I liked, but, um, I couldn't see that being, uh, a way for me to travel in my career. Mm -hmm. I felt like I'd just be stuck on Garmage if I became a vegetarian, we'll say. Mm -hmm. um, and I, what I was learning, I mean, there was so much information. So I felt like that's how I kept, had to keep doing to progress in my career. So, um, you know, it was a very meat heavy career working mm -hmm. meat station, roast station, making all the classic sauces. And those became the things I was very comfortable cooking, you know, mm -hmm. and they, they brought joy to people. So that kind of was my repertoire. Mm -hmm. And so when did you personally make the switch? I personally made the switch at Hazel in late 2017, mm -hmm. um, which was, was strange because I was still at the restaurant. I was still like, you know, in there working. Um, well, I guess one could cook the food. Yeah. Even if one's not eating the food, but it is yeah. hard to taste yeah, it just, along it, the way. It changes. It, it makes, changes. It, the cooks at first are like, did I mess something up? Because I'd eat it and I'd spit it out. And oh. I would be like... Did you not like it? Did I mess up a recipe? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> so, um, but well, yeah, it's you hard can do to it. stay yeah. committed. Yeah. I get that. Yeah, exactly. So that, that was a big thing. So I started rethinking how I wanted to cook, what I wanted to cook, mm. et cetera. Okay. So now let's jump over to you. Sure. So Max, um, you came from a family that had restaurants. You got into the biz. So, or were you hot about restaurants before your dad opened up proof? I, mean, I, I was, like so I young. was. Well, so I actually was in restaurants before you were in Okay. Um, and I feel um, like you and I grew up similarly. I did not grow up like you. I mean, my family talked about food 24-7 and still does. Like, I'm sure that's my mom texting me right now being like, <laughs> this is what we're doing for dinner. This is what we're doing for breakfast tomorrow. We may need a snack. What should we bring? I mean, like, I grew up in a family that talks about food all the time. So, and I know you grew up similarly. Yeah, definitely. Um... Well, in terms of restaurants, I got my first restaurant job was actually um, one summer in my first fresh between freshman and college, mm -hmm. freshman and sophomore year of college. I was um, I became a risotto cook at Teatro Goldoni for the summer. No yeah. kidding. So that was that was pretty awesome. Fabrizio definitely gave me a really good. Primer. He started me on a Saturday night in the uh -huh. busiest station of the restaurant, threw me in, and was like, at the end of it, was like... Did you right, build up your arm muscles? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, did, I, did, I, did, I, did, I was doing like six risottos at right? a time to order. And, you know, I made it through that first night. He's like, all right, well, you can stay for the summer then. And, right for uh, you. So, and then the next summer, I was a graveyard shift uh, milkshake boy at the American City Diner. No kidding. I revolutionized a lot of their systems. I'm proud to say. And okay. Became, I think there's... Like, a server. I mean, I just want to say for the record, I'm pretty sure their systems needed to be renovated. Oh, yeah. So congratulations. <laughs> and then from there, I actually... So, you know, my dad, as you know, was 
a complete foodie in this area. Right, and let's just give people. Uh, Mark um, opened up Proof. Uh, it was there was nothing like that in DC at the time. Um, behind Doi Moy and uh, Two Birds One Stone, also exactly uh, amazing and Stadio. Stadio, but mm -hmm. yeah, but before all that, I was in college in Rhode Island, and I was obsessed with a restaurant that many of your listeners may know called El Forno. Mm -hmm. um, and every time my dad would visit, we would go there and have great meals there. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated, my goal was just to work at El Forno. And it took me about a half a year to become a server there. Like wow. It was one of the most amazing training experiences in my life, just months as a food runner and busser. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I was a server at El Forno for a while before I moved back to D.C. in 2005 to start a grad program at American University in Fine Arts. Mm -hmm. um, so timing just happened to work out in 2007 when I was finishing that program. My dad was on the verge of opening proof. I had been in the restaurant business for a while. You did, point. and I apologize for it. I mean, no, 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 no. that you had, you already had the chops. No, 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 no. You're not a, what's the word? You're not an echo baby. I was, I was still learning, but actually, <laughs> I was like, I was about to move to New York. Actually, my art career was kind of going well at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, dad, I'll, you know, I want to be part of the beginning of your restaurant. I'll wait tables for a few months. And of course, Michael wouldn't hire me to be a, a nighttime server. He didn't think I had enough restaurant experience. So I started in lunch <laughs> and then a month or so in became a dinner server there. But um, yeah, and then of course, three years into being a server proof, I had really started getting the wine bug because, you know, well, we, it's had, a like, wine the restaurant, right? we had 40 wines by the glass. We were like doing amazing. I mean, Sebastian Zutan and our whole team just kind of ultimately caught the wine bug. So sure. it became a very cool place to learn about wine for a few years. But I had no intention of making restaurants my career. Still, even at that point, I was like, all right, I'm going to get ready so to get to New York. When did that change? So now we're in like, you know, late 2009 or like 2010. I'm mm -hmm. still approved and Estadio is being built. And my dad's looking for management team, and he couldn't find an assistant manager. I just want to say, Estadio had the heaviest chairs. <laughs> <laughs> and I know some of them got stolen when they were opening, but I always remember, like, those chairs, I was like, somebody has to push me in. <laughs> because I'm so little, like, I was like, I need somebody to push me in. For a six-foot-six giant. I know. <laughs> I know. He was like, these are for me, yeah. Mickey, not for you. Um, okay, so I want to catch us yeah, up yeah. because I want to get to where you guys met. Sure. So you, you get into Estadio. I know you really dive into wine. Yeah, so Estadio is when I took on management roles. And then, um, you know, we, in 2013, got ready to open Doing Moy. At that point, I was the beverage director for the company. So I was overseeing proof in Estadio mm -hmm. and Doing Moy. Um, unfortunately, my dad got diagnosed um right around that that same moment that we were getting ready to open Doi Moy. Mm -hmm. So things, you know, quickly got a little messy. We had 150 employees at that point between the three restaurants. And, and I also the, like one of the tightest teens. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had so, like, Karim and you had Justin Humphrey. Like, I mean, it was a heyday. We had a rock star team. It was a heyday. And it was big mm -hmm. and it was thorough and it was... You know, really plug and play at that point. Sure. Everything was rolling along. And, but I was the only member of the family other than my dad who, you know, was involved in the restaurants at that point. Mm -hmm. And four of us ended up taking over the three restaurants after he passed away. And there were just, to, you know, put it, you know, well, I mean, there were a lot of growing pains, you know, right. we were just trying to figure out. Um, how to keep things going the right way and the roles and, and so all that. let's let's sort of like depart there for a second. Sure. At what point, when all this is happening, do the two of you come together? So, about I would say a year or so after my dad was was gone, we were the family was starting to to realize that maybe this wasn't the best way to go forward mm -hmm. so we were having some talks about maybe doing some share swaps and you know maybe having people you know split off in ways right 
So ultimately, we kind of reached um, preliminary terms that I would basically move all my interest into a study. I just want to, you keep coming. I just want to make sure that you're a little bit more in front of the mic. So oh, sure, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get just it. Thank you. Um, so at that point, it became clear that, you know, I wasn't going to have a role in proof and doing my going forward or two mm -hmm. birds and was going to focus on Estadio, which kind of gave me a little more bandwidth to think about things that might be next in my career. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that I wanted to, you know, maintain Estadio and strengthen Estadio here in DC. Um, my dad had kind of planted the seeds in my head that Charleston was a cool place. I hadn't been to Charleston, oh, because Charleston is until cool after right. he passed away. Right. Um, but I went actually a couple of weeks after he passed away to Charleston for the first time and totally saw everything he was talking about mm -hmm. and saw this potential for a study down there that we had kind of like mused about. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something that got in my head then. Okay, um, but still, I don't know when you meant that. Yeah, well, we're not quite there yet. Don't I know, but we have so much time to the yeah, show, yeah. so I want to All right, right. we'll fast forward. <laughs> yes. So uh, a few months later, um, as I was still exploring things, our mutual friends and uh, Rob was working with a neighborhood restaurant group with Brent, Brent Kroll, kind of, mm -hmm. well. Also we, a pretty cool team, I might add, yeah. at that time, right? Yeah, like definitely. there was a lot going on over there too. So actually Rob and I will say a little interjection had met a little bit earlier at the Rammies one year on the dance floor. We had danced that together. Yeah. So we had good. Bumpy tushies? Yeah, we had yeah. good vibes, yeah. good kind of mutual. So okay. like we both kind of knew of each other. Brent was like, I think the two of you both might like be thinking about a similar thing. And mm -hmm. we sat down like the first couple weeks, Maxwell was open and Maxwell. And just had a rear down. This is Brent Crawls Maxwell, for those of you who don't know. So we sat down and we just started, you know, having an organic conversation about. Were you already, was your personal diet already vegetarian or vegan? It was, yeah. I, I, I actually became a vegetarian uh, when I was 16. So it was, I was very much um, the black sheep in the family because of that. Okay. Uh, it was a family. I mean, my dad's house had a, a vintage Burkle cutter on the coffee table. Sure. Um, meat was very much an important, important thing. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of support and respect always given towards my preferences. And um, so, yeah, at that point, I had been a vegetarian for, you know, most of my life. And... I knew if I ever was able to do a project that was personal and that I had more control of, uh, doing something that was, you know, elevated and plant-based was on the top of my list. And was it on the top of your list? At that point when we started talking, yeah, yes. I felt like that was the, the only direction I would go moving okay. forward as a chef. Yeah. But I think what's interesting about it is that you want to do a plant-based menu, but you wanted it elevated specifically what what was your vision and what was your vision and how did you two come to it together because plant-based comes with and you've integrated it it comes with so many other things right because you're talking about so many sustainability and you're talking about do we compost and we're talking about food waste like all these things sort of fall under the umbrella of plant-based so how did you two manage all of that as you were putting together a, a tasting menu concept for a plant-based restaurant. It's always a work in progress, yeah, right? We definitely didn't know it was going to be all that at the beginning. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I think you just start diving in. I think the original words were sustainability and working with plants, maybe even being just vegetarian the first time. Mm -hmm. um, but we knew we wanted to do something special with that. And, mm -hmm. and the deeper we dove and the more conversations we had, I think it was like just this big, giant rock and we started chiseling away and, and by the end i think we have what we have today but it by no means was that like this concept that we conjured up exactly what it was going to be and we were going to like full steam ahead and build that i think it's just a constant work in progress and it mm -hmm. still is today definitely well when you guys say uh so for people who haven't had the pleasure of going i think we should back up a little bit and explain the concept as it is now yeah. so that people have a good idea of what it means because i also want to sort of delve into for people who don't know, what does it mean to be a sustainable, to run a restaurant, to run a kitchen sustainably? Yeah. But let's start with what Oyster Oyster is. And 
Why is it called Oyster Oyster, for those who don't know? You can handle that one. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, why is it called Oyster Oyster? Because people are like plant-based, Oyster Oyster. I mean, I know why, but I'm, I'm throwing a softball. Yeah. yeah, but they're the... So, as we were starting the project, um, the sustainability aspect was definitely a very important part of it. And we actually didn't know to what degree potentially um, other things from the sea might be fair game as we were formulating things initially. Mm. Um, but we did know, actually, right around, right when Rob and I first talked, I had started eating oysters. Um, so I had went from a you know, fairly strict vegetarian diet to eating oysters within those you know few months leading up. So to more of a vegan diet, not vegetarian, vegan. So I've I've always been vegetarian and lacto lacto ovo, um, mm. but I just I had started reading some stuff about some vegans that were eating oysters and because they're so good for the environment. Well, they're not only good for the environment; they're also non sentient in that they don't have a true central nervous system. Mm. Um, so the idea is that they don't really feel pain. And it, there's other, you know, I, in other ways I could describe how they actually behave more like plants. They're reseeded. So oysters were already something that I was starting to eat um, under the idea that to me they were really more plants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of jived with the chef. And I wasn't eating them up. He wasn't eating them up. So we had this relationship, and I remember looking at his Instagram post, and he's like, Yeah, I just got the oysters forever. And I'm like, I thought this guy was vegetarian. What is he doing? And then we had the conversation, and I was like, Cool, I'm going to start eating oysters too. Also, I'm trying to think who it is. I think it was Ellen Gray is vegan, but her rule had always been I don't eat things with eyes. So she would eat oysters because yeah. she's like, no eyes. So I always thought that that was a very interesting way of mm -hmm. sort of going about what you consume. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, why was it called Oyster Oyster? To us, in the, the world of sustainability, the oyster was this beautiful symbol for both being, you know, fair game, but also this great icon of sustainability between mm -hmm. filtering water, between being able to re be reseeded. Just totally. And then mushrooms on the other side, you know, just also super highly sustainable, even right. more sustainable in a world that's kind of getting ravaged by some of the climate concerns we have now. Mm -hmm. So um, being the fact that there's a bottle of mushroom called an oyster mushroom. It worked beautifully. We were like, all right. It was like, you know, and we also had a really wonderful uh, designer who like kind of started playing around with the oyster shell and the, and the mushroom and like, like, oh, this is so cool. It's like almost a yin yang sort of, mm -hmm. thing, you know, sort of thing. And so, yeah, that's why the, the name, I mean, although, even though for us the name felt very natural and, and appropriate and fun, it was not well received in our early testing. As a matter of fact, most people we ran it by were like, that's just stupid. <laughs> like, they were like, people are going to think it's an oyster bar. People are going to be like, why oyster, two oysters? Okay, you know, I have to tell you, listen, if you, if you ask the question, you're not always going to like the answer. That's true. And yeah. I, I do think that people are very stuck in what they think they know, right? So if you had said to me, what do you think of the name Oyster Oyster? I probably would have said, yeah, I don't think it tells people what we're talking about. But now that I know what Oyster Oyster is, of course, it tells people what they're what mm -hmm. you're talking about. I mean, it doesn't say all the things, but neither does a restaurant called Home or a restaurant or the Wine Lair. <laughs> exactly, I mean, nothing yeah. necessarily says exactly what it is. Um, but I do. Can we just for a moment take people through because it's an it's listen. It's a very casual feeling restaurant. Um, you don't have to get all dressed up. It's not super fancy, but there is a um, hospitable formality that's a part of the service. And that takes you through the experience. I'd love to know a little bit more about that. And for people who haven't been able to bank, because let's be honest, what is it? 30 seats? 35 seats? What do we got yeah, in there? Not 30. 35 yeah. seats? Turnover what? Two, three times? Two times. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, only so many people can get in at a certain point in time. So exactly. for those who haven't had the experience, can we just kind of walk through it a little bit? Yeah. I mean, so like we said, we always want to build something that was sustainable. And mm -hmm. to us, that means being extremely responsible with everything we do. Um, so that started with the food and that needs to transcend. I mean, when Max worked with the designer inside, I mean, the materials we picked were as sustainable as we could to still have like a really lovely restaurant in a metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. um, but like 
we wanted that genuine, really comforting, welcoming feeling you get at some of the best restaurants in the world, right? Um, and we wanted to make sure we had that experience. And I think having like a 30 seat restaurant really, really instills that and gives you that time with your service staff, gives you time with the kitchen staff. And it really creates this moment with one another that's like really this escapism. You get to come to a place and be taken care of. And we're not just doing that for the environment. We want to do that for ourselves and kind of have this holistic approach as well for our, for our own minds and our guest minds um, when they come to dine at the restaurant. So that was really important to us. That open format was really big to the design too, where you just feel like you're kind of walking into a home in a sense that you can see the kitchen working. Everything's very transparent. Mm-hmm. You have this really, really beautiful experience in front of you. And we want our get, we want our staff to be able to feel like themselves too. So that's where like some of those formalities dropped off, right? Like they're not in like a stuffy suit or mm-hmm. anything along the lines of that. We wanted to also kind of reflect our, ourselves a little bit in the service style where it's a little laid back and you can be very professional, professional and knowledgeable and, and very driven and not have to have this pretension behind it. And I think that was really important to us, um, especially with working with such a big topic like climate climate crisis and sustainability we don't want to hit people over the head with that and give them like this kind of daunting experience (laughs) because even though the restaurant is mission driven you do want to make sure i mean we've all sat in a restaurant i'm sure we've been named several that are the same where you know their mission is sort of hammered over the head Mm -hmm. and i mean there are foodies out there who love that shit they're like i'll take your mission give it to me and then i mean i think there are a lot of people who are like i just i want to eat a really good meal you know, so finding that balance, yeah. I think, is important. We felt that the power to, I mean, a lot of our power is with the food, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, um, I mean, we people, our guests don't get the menu until the end of the meal. And we really want them to, you know, have this experience where they're engaging with food and having these delicious kind of eye-opening moments and then, you know, processing it and being like, wow, we didn't have, like, Meat. basically just yeah. ate a vegan meal. Right, you know? right. And, um, and then reading the menu, then, oh, my goodness, there was a parsnip in that. I hate parsnips. Right. Oh, my goodness, there's beets. I never like beets. You know? Right. I loved it. Yeah. And so it's, I think that's, like, almost the preachings, right? It's like mm-hmm. that accidental, it's like oh my goodness, you just blew my mind with vegetables. Vegetables can do this, right? right. And then there are eyes are more open to like, you know, further experiences in our realm. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I think we, we definitely want to make an impact, but we don't want to do it in that way. It where sounds it's like, like more what you want is you want the impact made that they, it's almost a self-discovery, right? Like people realize the impact after the meal yeah right which is really interesting because i mean i think the three of us would agree the reason i go to restaurants is you love that that feeling that magic you get from it i mean that's what drew me into the industry Mm -hmm. and to go to somewhere where you feel like you're going to a seminar is not enjoyable we want that pleasure Mm -hmm. um absolutely i think that's the main thing and through that we do like storytelling and try to weave some of these things we're doing with sustainability into the spiels of the dishes and well plus also your work with local farmers Mm -hmm. and the product that's being delivered i mean i assume you are constantly building relationships with what's available out there so that what you're bringing to the table is I, i don't want to use the term precious because mushrooms don't necessarily you could have dried mushrooms or you could have you know things that are manipulated in different ways so but who are some of the people that you like sought out and now are there all these people seeking you out being like hey man you need to check out my bok choy or whatever yeah i mean that definitely does happen now Mm -hmm. i mean in the beginning luckily we live in a a world where social media exists and it's easy to kind of find these farmers and are on there and they're able to promote themselves. The Atlantic is pretty lush. It is. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we work with over 20 different small purveyors and farmers that like supply everything for the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when we say the sustainability elements and being local, like that's something we're really committed to. So our our oil is a cold pressed canola coming out of Pennsylvania. It's the only thing we cook with in terms of oil. Um, For sweetener, we, we don't use any like refined cane sugar we only use maple honey and sorghum Mm. um so every 
dessert kind of has a hint of that, but then that gives you a sense of place, right? Like this right. is what it's like to eat mid-Atlantic. That's what a sweetener would be for there. Mm -hmm. um, we're void of citrus fruits where we live. Um, so it creates a lot of creativity and fun things. Right, because at that acid yeah. is, you know, like that squirt of lemon can change a dish, yeah. right? So <laughs> it's fascinating that you don't use it. Exactly. Yeah. It's, and it's fun and you start to build techniques and a, a whole new repertoire. And I always say like, we talked about my upbringing a little bit and it's like how much of that I had to just like throw away of yeah. like years of abuse in kitchens that added up to not using any of those techniques or things anymore is, mm -hmm. is really crazy. And we're kind of rebuilding everything. And I, it's really exciting for myself and the team to constantly be working in that realm. And, and these things are, you know, one thing that is so cool is by doing this process and staying true to this process of not bringing in things like lemons, you know, we end up building a limited palette that creates a point of view and like a set of ingredients that becomes really exciting because it's so unique, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've, when we were, you know, we've talked several times about the um, Ulipo, which is a French writing group that you know would kind of limit create like limits on their poems in order to create more interesting you know texts mm -hmm. but we're creating like limits by the natural boundaries of what we view like the limits of our sustainability enabled sources mm -hmm. that creates interesting you know foods sure. and and then you combine that with the techniques and the you know the i mean as we've continued to evolve and grow Chef and his team have been able to explore more and more different techniques between fermentation and preservation and, you know, things that we can now say, okay, well, we have this awesome, you know, local ingredient from six months ago that we now have in this way that never would have happened if we had the floodgates of the world that are disposable, sure. right? Like where we could just be like, oh, we'll go to India for this thing <laughs> that will play this role. Right. And I think that's one of the most unique things about the restaurant. I think it's... Um, you know, just thinking inside of like the sandbox of the region is um, very fruitful. But I think it, in a lot of people's minds, it's a scary thing to kind of go down that road because, you know, you might be like, well, what if I really need lemon for my dish? What if right. I really want to bring Well, it is daunting. Yeah. But it's not daunting for you all because this is these are the parameters you have set for yourself. I want to uh -huh. jump in just a little bit on the wine program because it is very interesting. Is it 100% natural wines, um, close to it? Well, I mean, I would say we probably define, I mean, I think those are hard words to, to really define. Mm -hmm. I think that we, everything we use, um, we believe is being handled in the most sustainable you know, mm -hmm. way possible. I think that for certain wine regions, you know, there's bigger challenges in terms of maybe something ever being officially designated organic. Well, no, no, no. I'm not, like that, right. you know. I'm not talking because that's no different than farmers who don't get the organic sure. designation. They can't afford it, so therefore they don't do it, but mm -hmm. it doesn't mean their practices aren't organically based. Sure, yeah. But the wine purveyors that you're bringing to the table have something that are important to you both, right? Which yeah. is why, I mean, Definitely. you have a terrific wine list, but it's not, it for the uninitiated, you know, it's not like everybody looks at that wine list and they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know anybody on here or, you know, it's unfamiliar. Definitely. But I think that there's, <clears throat> there's definitely room for wines on our list where they're paying respect to the land and using traditional methods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, I think that there's the only place I put a caveat on that natural wine idea is there's a lot of wines on our list, which you know, are not natty at all, right? They're, they're well, natural. I know, but, but there were, like, yeah. for a while, when natural wines were sort of gaining traction, right, like, a lot of traction, it was almost like gauntlet throne. Like, who could pour the funkiest, uh, cloudiest, you know, wine and then drink it and be like, this is delicious, yeah. you know? <laughs> and I was always like, like, I, I you know, in my world, with what I do, I do feel like when I come in, people a lot of times are gauntlet thrown. They're like, well, here's Nikki. She must eat everything. She must drink everything. So they'll put, you know, something crazy in front of me. And I'm like, 
okay, I'll taste it, but I don't want it. Do you know right, what I mean? Right, like, right. I'm like, can I just get my son Sarah, please? But, um, you know, so I just wonder, like, how you yeah. go about doing that and then serving somebody like me. I mean, like, I want a son Sarah. What would, you know, are you able to find the products? Yeah, well, I think the answer is there are, there's plenty of son Sarahs that are fair game for me. Right. You know, because there, a lot of son Sarah is super respectful to the land and natural okay. tradition. So I think that, um, our, you know, we've had a few different people in charge of our wine list. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been evolution there. And I think there's evolution in terms of how we're, you know, think about not just between the different minds, mm-hmm. but also in we want wines that are delicious, you know, mm-hmm. and we want the wines that are singing with our food. So those are things we're evaluating just as much as, you know, just at the, you know, those are also taking big weight yeah. in terms of how we're sourcing wines and what, what the decisions we're making. Um, well, let me just ask you both a question. So as you guys were putting the concept together, um, I, we don't have a lot of time to talk about the launch because it was, you know, you did take out during the pandemic and then you opened in 2021. Um, but was it a hard, you said, you know, like you would tell people Oyster Oyster and they'd be like, that's a dumb name. Um, <laughs> was it a hard sell when you first were launching, when the doors were ready to open? How did you get, you already, listen, you were both well known in the area. So there's already trust. Mm-hmm. from a certain part of the community who's like, I know Rob, I know his food, I know he's going to be good. You know, I know Max. He's been a part of the industry for so long. I know whatever he's doing is going to be solid. So you have trust already. But the concept was new for so many. Um, how did you get a lot of pushback? Were people tough on you both? And how, what about money? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, people just like, plant-based, here we go, pay you. I, I mean, to start with, it was a very, 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 very hard restaurant to find investors in. You know, okay. we, we, I mean, it was. Not now, I'm sure they're throwing money. I'm sure it would, I'm sure it'd be very different if we were marketing shares now, but I mean, it was literally like trying to sell ice to Eskimos. I mean, it was a, a worse or like, I mean, it was, no one had any interest. Yeah. Um, I I, song and dance and then they'd just be like, bye. Well, but I just want to say, here's the one thing I will say to you both. I mean, when I started in the industry 20 years ago, I had a friend who um, was vegetarian. And whenever we would go out, I mean, it was either like a plate of steamed vegetables in the beginning, early days, a plate of steamed vegetables, a plate of pasta. I was like, they can't put together a composed. It was almost like the kitchen was offended. Mm-hmm. But you know, now in that twenty years, obviously the conversation has shifted greatly, sure. and you could really go to a large swath of very well-respected restaurants that will at least have some dishes that are composed dishes that are specifically plant-based for the diner. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So, like, you're doing a entirely plant-based menu is not out of the question. It's, it's time has come. Obviously, you've got all the accolades to prove it. Yeah. I mean, I just think there was a lot of reservation. I think there hadn't been a lot of restaurants at the level that we were trying to do it that mm-hmm. have shown success, right? Like, right. I mean, there's cuisines, you know, I mean, you can go to India, you can go to Southeast Asia. They've mm-hmm. done vegetarian and vegan food forever, and it's phenomenal, right? Like, you right. can go to those restaurants and have it, but to say we're doubling down on just buying local, <laughs> We're oh, talking no, about no, the no. sustainability thing, right. I think is where, where some of the, the, the rolled eyes started. Um, but I think also the COVID starting really made people think, you know, where, where is your food coming from? I think us, that was kind of this nice little bubble for us to then open with because it gave, gave so much of our community and the food world and, and just diners in general time to think. And a lot of them only resource was, oh, I'm going to support this local farm and buy this CSA to my house. And it, mm-hmm. I think it connected a lot of folks to like eating more vegetables because you can just go to the grocery store and mm. not a lot of folks in DC just have chickens and cows in their backyard. So, mm-hmm. um, they had to eat that way. And I think that gave us a good opportunity when we opened the doors. And I'd say like the early subscribers when we first opened were, 
majority vegetarian and vegan diners but as the word got out it's just like the amount of guests that come in now they're like i'm a i'm a hardcore meat eater and i love this and all that so mm-hmm. it's given us some you know it gave us all as as humans a good opportunity to kind of reflect on how we should be eating and how we should be treating the environment so i'd say that had we opened and covid never happened maybe it would have been a little harder you know yeah. i don't know i i Maybe, but I just feel like you brought it up. I mean, with all the climate issues that are happening, I mean, you said that um, off air that somebody had said to you at some point that your being a vegetarian wasn't changing our climate issues. Yeah, well, really early on, you know, I remember just being a teenager and, you know, it's sometimes coming up as a vegetarian. I remember hearing multiple times, like one person being a vegetarian is not going to make any difference. Mm. That's like saying one vote doesn't count. I mean, we all know it's wrong. Yes. But, you know, especially feels impactful, you know, at this stage of my career, like that, you know, if we didn't believe in this idea that everyone was so skeptical of and we didn't just keep pushing forward mm-hmm. and saying, no, we're going to prove you wrong. I mean, we, 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 first of all, we didn't think we could do, you asked like, why was it going to be elevated? We didn't think we could, had a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, we thought if we didn't elevate the food enough, it wouldn't work. Because, like, if you did an a la carte menu, well, even if it was like you know, just not kind of pushing technique and kind of figuring out like how to make the food truly special, because mm-hmm. you know, we'd seen people try to open higher end vegetarian restaurants, but without really maybe matching you know that that right. level of it and seeing those not really work in general in our in our estimation. So we really, you know, we were like, no, I mean, first of all, I believed in Rob as a chef, mm-hmm. you know, so we knew, I knew we had a ability to create something that was truly special and was going to be doing this type of casino. Also, I do want to say your restaurant has parking, which honestly is a huge sell for people coming in from the bridge and tunnel crew. Yeah. I know that sounds silly, but but it is true. We do have good parking. You do. You have good parking. But with, you know, without, without it being at that level, we thought that we could easily end up in a scenario where we're not filling the dining room every night, Mm. which is really, I mean, we're in a, a luxurious position today because we know, you know, we can, we're full, right? right? So that makes it so much easier or, it does make it so well, much easier to push things, right? Well, not like, only you know, that, financially, you know what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. You know how much food you're... I mean, if we did the math on that, like, I think that's why so many other restaurants, especially after the pandemic, are doing tasting menus because costs are what they are. And they know, well, if I do a tasting menu and I either do reservation only or I only, I'm only going to take 10 walk-ins or whatever it is, I know exactly how much food I have. This is not going, like, waste is not yep. an issue, which mm-hmm. is obviously really important. And, um, I know, I know what my, I'm going to cover my numbers, which is good business. Definitely. Because Definitely. otherwise it's like, you're like, I don't know how many people are coming in tonight. Exactly. It's yeah. a crapshoot. It's, uh, sustainability, uh, those practices actually, they do save money. There might be a little bit of an upfront investment for you or mm-hmm. seem like something harder to do. But if once you get it rolling, it's, uh, way better in the long run right mm-hmm. like definitely definitely shows shows it with what we do um you know like we don't use any single-use plastics so there's no plastic wrap no sous vide bags uh no takeout containers like just not those upfront purchases right is really great for a restaurant uh financially but more importantly for the environment like we're not just throwing a bunch yeah, of those sous vide bags yeah. like there's nothing it's like those are not recyclable there is nothing you can do with them nope. and we get to be what we are you yeah. know we get right. to like do what we do right it's like we make dinner for the 50 people that come every night and we're equipped to do it the best we can and we don't create waste you know it just all the better we've got at things the more actually sustainable it's all become yeah, exactly. because it all just flows sure. together right that makes sense so i'm just sort of curious um because i've done some work with the zero waste people How, like what would you say your waste is at 
You must be so minimal because you compost. Yeah. So in terms of anything that would go in your standard, you know, waste pickup right. trash can is, is very minimal. Like it's, you know, our, our farmers we work with, we try to have a closed loop system where they bring product in a container. We take it out of that container, put uh -huh. it in our container and it goes back. There's not like a bunch of plastic and boxes that get thrown away. Um, and then our composting program is really serious and not having any other things like, you know, miscellaneous plastic to go in there. Uh, it's all going into compost if we're not making interesting things out of it. You know, mm -hmm. we try to look at a lot of our dishes are kind of built around that one ingredient, how many times we can like replicate it or can we do something interesting with this trim? And then that slides into the next dish and mm -hmm. kind of creating mm -hmm. this zero waste mentality without mm -hmm. like really making it a big deal i don't know it's like at this point it's just very intuitive what we do it's like it's not really yeah. and the garage factors in too i mean I we always yeah. garage. okay so now you have the garage next door oyster garage it's a pizza place yes what are we calling it uh, more of an oyster bar first yeah i think oh. that's fair yeah okay so it's an oyster bar <laughs> yeah because we don't people are always like you don't serve oysters in this restaurant called right oyster okay so wait Maybe i'm sorry bit, yeah. i thought you were doing pizza did i totally we do we that? do do like these cool little personal pan pizzas right. um and but we you know it's there's no oven and kitchen equipment out there so we do okay. a very minimal amount we do uh about 12 of those a night Okay. Um, and it's like first come first serve so we do have those available and i assume the cheese is vegan we do it with or without so okay. um you have the option to get it classic we use a really great cheese it's called meadow rella it's they're playing on mozzarella and it's grass-fed mm -hmm. cows out of pennsylvania it's really really good uh stuff they're practicing a lot of regenerative uh things mm -hmm. um and then if not we make like really good sauces and everything on there um and mm -hmm. since most vegan cheeses are made out of ingredients that wouldn't be found in mid-atlantic we can't really right utilize that's that. what i was kind of curious personally like, not something i enjoy so right <laughs> No, me either. I've tried. I really have tried. I don't get well, it. Although that sunflower whiz is always welcome yeah, on my plate. Exactly. That we used to use in our cheese steaks. The okay. The sunflower whiz is... Yeah, oh, I'll have to try that. Kind of, uh, but we didn't even talk about the marigold butter. Yeah. The, <laughs> is, yeah, the vegan uh, sunflower whiz is like... Uh, offspring of the marigold butter right <laughs> okay. yeah. all right i yeah. feel like i have to get into that yeah. okay so oyster garage is oysters oysters and then we do some like and the uh, space is like the size time. of this table it's so tiny yeah it's, it's, small. it's tiny, tiny. Yeah. yeah but the last thing that we're doing there are some salads which is another vehicle for us to Minimum. use food in, in ways that so once upon a time, we thought the garage might be called Scrappies. Ultimately, oh, <laughs> you know, we use scrap, yeah. and I love like, it. so it's, yeah. it's you know it's, it's a super garage, but it still has some of that ethos of trying yeah. to again maximize everything. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Tell me where we can find you and where we can find you. Um, you mean social, yeah. or you can find me. You're from find me in Harleyville, South Carolina. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there, uh, is, there is an Estadio in Charleston. We did not get to that. Is. Go ahead. Um, my hashtag is uh, at Max Color, M-A-X-K-U-L-L-E-R, mm -hmm. uh, on Instagram. Great. Exclusively. Okay. And uh, Chef? Yeah. Um, at the restaurant, Oyster Oyster in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., 1448th Street, Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> or you can find me on Instagram. With parking! With Yay! parking. Now with parking. Right. No. <laughs> And you can find me on Instagram. I have left X. I am sorry. That's all right. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Rob Ruba. That's mm -hmm. R-U-B-B-A. Yeah. Right. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining me. I'm just going to do a, clip, a quick wrap-up. Everything you heard here today, you can find on the list, areyouonit.com. Uh, check us out on YouTube. Subscribe. And if you have any questions for Chef or Max today, ask me. I am sure to get you the answer. Um, I want to thank you all for joining us today. We're at the Gorgeous Wine Lair. I'm grateful for them and Ada and Hardcast Media, all the people who make this show happen. Um, so much is going on in the hospitality industry, not just locally, but nationally and internationally. Stay up to date on all of it. Be safe out there and have a delicious week. Mm -hmm.